0: morning. Oh, you got to be careful with this thing. Um, The scripture today is taken from the book of uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. I'll be reading from verses 1 through 18. And I would invite you to follow along if you would like. The passage is printed on page 6 of the bulletin. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than, any, than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back again a second time and touched him and said get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Hareb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled back his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shephath, from Abel-Mahola, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel. Although all whose knees have not bowed down to bow, and whose mouths have not kissed him.
1: Thank you, Glossier. Tough names there at the end though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all right. Well, we're continuing in our study of the prophet Elijah. It's four weeks, brief weeks looking at a couple key scenes in this wonderful man's life, this man that in the book of James is described to us as a man just like us. And I think in today's passage in particular, we have a glimpse into the ways in which this mighty prophet of God is all too familiarly just like us. Let's take a look and see how that is. But first, let's pause and let's pray. Jesus, we come to you as children. By that we mean we depend upon you. By that we mean oftentimes you tell us things and we don't care, (laughs) don't want to listen, don't want to follow. That's the waywardness of our hearts. But most of all, we come to you as children, meaning we're dependent upon you. We open our mouths, but you need to put the food in. Jesus, we need you for life. So please come and give us food to eat. Give us life by your word. Uh, Give us strength because we're weak. And so send your spirit, make this word come alive in our hearts, in our community, and through us to our neighborhood and our city. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you've ever, maybe even recently, experienced some kind of an emotional high. Maybe because of an exciting personal event, a birthday or something. Or maybe it was a a big work success, the completion of a project some kind of major victory that puts you on an emotional high, and then you find yourself crashing immediately afterwards with inexplicable gloom. Some have called this a happiness hangover. Scientists have even identified neurological reasons for this, a high and then immediately a crash to a low. Well, that's something that Elijah experienced, and that we find described here in this passage. As we saw last week, Elijah had just defeated the prophets of Baal in this wonderful contest to prove which God was the true God. Thousands in a large crowd had gathered around, and Elijah essentially had won the contest. Rather, God had won the contest as he appeared as fire coming down from heaven. After a three-year drought and famine, God sent rain to the land of Israel once again, as his people fell down before God, prostrate and crying out, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. But now, in the very next chapter, you just turn the page in the story, we find Elijah in the pits, slumped over, literally on the ground. He was experiencing what we might call discouragement, or what you might call spiritual depression. It might actually be an apt description of what you yourself might be battling today. What is it? That source of discouragement, that nagging spiritual depression maybe that hangs over you like a cloud. Maybe because of some personal failure. Maybe it's been nipping at your heart for a long time. Maybe in light of MLK Day, it's the discouragement that you feel at the state of racial affairs in our nation or in the American church. We all experience this from time to time, even the best of us, as it were, all of us experience it. If you haven't, in a deep way, maybe this passage is here to prepare you for some time in the future, maybe the near future, when you'll find yourself battling discouragement and depression. This is what we're going to look at today. This is what we find a portrait of in today's passage. And before we continue on, I want to be clear that we're not talking about clinical depression. There are, in fact, certain forms of depression that are caused by our physiology, a physical phenomenon, our biology. These sorts of things certainly need, oftentimes, medical attention. It's important for Christians not to over-spiritualize what is sometimes our physical conditions. For example, that all you need to do is simply pray more. Or the cause of this is that you're not just believing in God and His promises enough. In fact, for some of us, one of the most important applications from this sermon is going to be that you need to go and make an appointment with a counselor or a therapist or a doctor. It's important to understand the physical components of some of our discouragement and even depression. It's also important for us to recognize, however, that the Bible describes us not only as bodies but also as souls. That these different parts of us intersect and interact with one another. And so it's important for us not to simply reduce all of our struggles to merely the spiritual. It's also important for us not to reduce all of our struggles merely to the biological either. It's oftentimes a mixture. It's oftentimes both physical and spiritual. Some of these principles we're going to look at are going to be applicable even for those of us struggling with clinical forms of despair and depression. But here we have Elijah, the prophet, on the run. We're told in verse 4, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And this is where we encounter different dynamics of discouragement. And we're going to look at this in two parts. First, the experience of discouragement. What does it look like? What does it feel like? And then secondly, the healing of discouragement. How does God meet Elijah? How might he meet with you? Let's take a look. First, the experience of discouragement. What's it like to feel this way? What are some characteristics and some marks? We'll find a couple here in this passage. First of all, fear. Fear. We already named this one. We talked about it last week. But Elijah's discouragement, of course, wasn't irrational. Maybe your discouragement isn't irrational either. In fact, he had received a death threat from Queen Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, whom the book of 1 Kings describes as Israel's worst king. We're told in verse 2 that Jezebel sends a message to Elijah, may the gods deal with me ever so severely if by this time tomorrow, essentially, if I don't kill you. You're a dead man, most wanted. And so we're told in verse 3, Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. Maybe some of you are experiencing fear and terror in that sort of way. Sometimes it's not just terror of that intense kind of grade, but sometimes it's fear in the form of low-grade anxiety. Maybe you live every day feeling like your job is to keep people from being mad at you. That's a form of fear as well. It's something that I've seen in my own life, in my own struggles with anxiety, how much you can live almost every day on the fuel of fear and anxiety and not even know it. It's become such a normal way of moving about your day. But have you ever noticed how much that kind of fear can just drain you, even depress You Suck the very life out of you. A lot of our discouragement at its root can be fueled by fear. It drains us. Speaking of which, secondly, we find another characteristic in Elijah's life. Discouragement that's caused by and shows up through exhaustion. Just plain out weariness. Exhaustion. We see in verse 4. He came to a broom bush, and he sat down under it. Then in verse 5, he lay down under the broom bush and fell asleep. This broom bush is some kind of a a desert shrub. Elijah just goes under this scraggly, pitiful-looking bush, being pitiful in the state of his soul himself. He's tired. He lies down, and he falls asleep. Sometimes we're discouraged Because we're just flat out tired. Some of you maybe might find yourself on the brink of burnout. You're exhausted. And that's where your despair starts. That's where it shows up. Thirdly, we find hopelessness. Not only fear and exhaustion, but also hopelessness. Notice Elijah was discouraged and depressed. Not only because of this threat on his life, but also because this threat from queen jezebel meant that things in israel despite this great display of god's power in the previous chapter things in israel hadn't immediately changed the prophet isaiah i mean uh, elijah of course was longing for change. Perhaps he had even expected such change. We hear this later in verse 10 when Elijah speaks to God The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And so he's acknowledging that even that great display of God's power didn't persuade the people, especially Jezebel. Idolatry dies hard. Sin dies hard. Change takes time. Elijah shouldn't have been surprised. We shouldn't either, but sometimes the lack of immediate change can be discouraging, can't it? Sometimes it even leads to despair. Do you, friends, ever feel like God isn't changing things fast enough? You're just not seeing enough immediate progress. Do you ever get discouraged or depressed Because of it. Sometimes we feel because of that, we want to just give up on God. He's not doing nothing anyway. We're sure of it. Elijah here, just like us, lost hope. In verse 4, we're told that he prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he says. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And maybe today you feel that way too. I've had enough. It's too much, Lord. It's too much. I've had enough of this fight against this broken relationship. God, I've had enough of the struggle against chronic pain. God, I've just had enough of struggling every day to make ends meet. Some of you, that's the cry of your heart. God, it's too much. I've had enough. And it's important to note here, too, that it surely does look and sound like Elijah is contemplating suicide, and so it's important to say a few things like this. I know in a room of even this size that there are some of you who have gone through the worst of the worst of the pits of despair. I know that is certainly true. So it's important to point out here, first of all, that even at his worst moment here, Elijah didn't actually feel that he had the authority to take his own life. You take my life, he says. He actually, even in his worst, remains submitted to God's authority as the creator and giver and even taker of life. But secondly, and maybe even more importantly, as we're going to hear throughout this passage, Elijah was deeply loved and deeply valued by God. And dear friends, so are you. There's hopelessness in our hearts oftentimes. There was an Elijah, and that too is one of the marks of our discouragement. There's also loneliness, isn't there? Loneliness. Discouragement is a lonely experience. It's also fueled by loneliness itself. Elijah was literally alone. In verse 3, he left his servant in Beersheba on the way down to where he landed, but in his ministry, he felt isolated too. So he says to God in verse 10, I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Some of you feel this way. Some of us feel deflated because of just being on your own, and those days are just adding up. And what's even more isolating is that it's hard to admit it, and so we don't really put words to that experience. I'm lonely. I remember having conversations with people over the years in ministry where you will kind of invite this uh, understanding that they're struggling with loneliness, and then they'll be careful to say, and maybe you've heard this out of your own mouth, yeah, I feel alone, but, but, but I'm not lonely, right? We become semantic experts, very careful, because we feel embarrassed to admit it. Friends, there's no embarrassment before the grace of God. We do feel lonely often. It's hard to admit, but we feel it. Others of you might, in fact, even be surrounded by friends and companions, and you still feel it. Maybe because you feel alone in the fight for what's right, like Elijah. Not just that you don't have friends, but you don't have allies. You feel like you're the only one striving to be faithful, to do what's right. There's loneliness in the journey through discouragement. And that brings us to the last characteristic that we find in this passage. I don't know if you noticed it, but there's even here a tinge of self-pity. God eventually speaks to Elijah and in in verse 9, he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Ask him a question. If you listen carefully to Elijah's response in verse 10, listen to what we hear. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And he repeats those very same words in verse 14 again. Of course, nothing that Elijah says right there is untrue. Israel has, in fact, turned far away from God. But this is also what self-pity can sound like. You repeat what is, in fact, true, but you make it all about me. See, self-pity says, I deserve better than this. And it's even sometimes accompanied by a little bit of self-righteous critique of other people. I'm the only one. Maybe you're someone that walks around in life feeling that way. I'm the only one doing. It. I'm the only one. I'm the only one cleaning the kitchen. Doing it. I'm the only one watching out for others. I'm the only one that cares. Oh, friends, be careful. People in our heart. People in our hearts that we have that 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 sound like if 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 I don't do it, who will? It's a recipe for discouragement. When we are struggling with discouragement, we are spiritually vulnerable to things like self-pity and self-righteousness. God is merciful, as we're about to see, but we also need to be watchful for these dynamics in our hearts. Fear, weariness, hopelessness, loneliness, self-pity, different marks of discouragement and depression. Which of these are true of you today? Which of these are true of you today? And I've got to say, I'm just so glad that we have this story in the Bible, right? We got here a prophet, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. One of the prophets that are most clearly compared in the New Testament to Jesus himself. And yet he's discouraged, even depressed. Elijah was a man of God, whose prayers were so effective, he could call down fire from heaven, and yet here he is lying on the ground saying, God, I'm giving up. That's hopeful. The Bible not only acknowledges our pain and despondency, and not only gives us a way out, but actually acknowledges that it can happen to the best of us. It happens to all of us. Because we're all weak and needy. All of us are vulnerable and all of us need the grace of God. I remember even for myself, not too long ago, I was dealing with a bout of special intensive discouragement, but it was a hard thing for me to actually say so to people around me. It took me a little while to actually say those words to my wife, I am discouraged. Discouraged, I think that's the right way to describe it. To say it also to fellow pastors, I am discouraged. Some of you need to do that even today. To turn to a friend or to pick up a phone, the phone or to walk together and to say, hey, hey, th- this is hard for me to say, but I am struggling with discouragement. It takes courage to be weak like that. Some of you need that. All of us need it at some time or another. But God doesn't leave us there. He comes with all of his mercy, compassion, kindness. Let's take a look, secondly, at the healing of discouragement. What does God provide Elijah? And what does he provide us? Let's take a look. First of all, the first amazing thing that the God of the universe shows up with To come and show kindness and mercy and restoration to this great prophet whose face is literally on the ground. The first thing that God brings is a snack. Practical care. Look at what we're told in verse 5. Elijah lay down under a bush. He fell asleep. And then an angel, a messenger from God, a representative of God himself comes. And first of all, he touches him. Did you notice that he touched him he came so near that he made sure Elijah knew that God was there touched him with gentleness and then he said get up and eat That's the first word that Elijah heard from God in the midst of his discouragement and depression get up and eat Verse 6, Elijah looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Then after a while, the angel came a second time and we're told in verse 8 that Elijah was strengthened by the food. The first thing that God gave Elijah gives you not a lecture, not a word of rebuke, but food, drink, and a nap. How about it, people, for a word of application? God knows that we are not only emotionally and spiritually weak. He knows that we're also physically weak. God does not bypass our physical human createdness, our physical bodies. We are not disembodied souls. We are not just hovering intellects or even spiritual beings without bodies. In times of discouragement and depression, take care of your God-given bodies. Not as the only step, but as a vital, non-negotiable step. Some of you need this even today and need to receive it from the hand of God. Today, for many of us, the most spiritual thing you can do is go home and go take a guilt-free nap. Because it's not going to answer every question you have, but it might answer some. And it might just be the way that God rejuvenates you. And some of us are exhausted, therefore, let me put it kind of provocatively, some of us are exhausted and discouraged because we are arrogant. What I mean by that is that we believe that we are superhuman, That we don't need the normal things of life. You train your mind to think, I can get by and I can keep on going. and I'm not like other people. I don't need what the normal person needs. And let me be clear that many of us are in such stations in life that you don't have the choice. So I want to be careful here and not say you're exhausted just because you're not willing to take a nap. Some of you don't have that choice. But where we are given a choice and we have more choices, I think, than we normally think in this area... God calls us to pay attention to our physical bodies. Don't underestimate the spiritual power of a good meal and a good nap. So go get it. And when someone brings it to you, receive it. And for some of you, you see exhausted people around you, discouraged people around you, go give it to them. A meal providing room for them to take a nap. Secondly, not only a snack, secondly, sympathy sympathy. What does the angel say to Elijah verse 7? Get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. That word too much actually is the very same word and phrase that Elijah uses in verse 4 when he says I have had enough, Lord. He actually says the same thing. I have I have had too much, Lord. So the angel, God's representative, saying, get up and eat, for the journey is, it is too much for you. I'm agreeing with you. God agrees with you when it hurts. God agrees with you that it's dark. Oh, friend, some of us need to know the grace of God in this way, that God never says to you, just suck it up. He never says that. He comes to you with fullness of compassion. Yes, he will press us on to perseverance. The Bible calls a life of faith a race and a marathon. But he never says, will you just get over it? Why are you so weak? No, he says, I know you're weak. In fact, you're weaker than you know you are. I wish you would be even weaker still, that you would come to me. Throw yourself upon my promises because it is too much for you. And at this point, I need to mention that there's this popular saying that's very commonly recited again and again in Christian and even more broadly, religious circles. And it sounds something like this. God will never give you more than you can handle. God will never give you more than you can handle. And you know what? God sometimes will bring us to an end to ourselves. The promise of scripture is not that God will never give you more than you can handle. It's that God will never give you more than he can handle. God will never give you more than he can handle in and through you. His goal is not to keep you confident in your own strength. His goal is to make you more confident in his strength. So your reassurance is not just that God is holding back and you're buff and strong. Your confidence is when you fall apart and it is too much for you, God is there to catch you. God is there to rescue you. God is there to be strong in you when you are weak because it is too much for you. And that is exactly why he came. It's too much, the brokenness, the sin, the discouragement. This is why he came to come down to help you and me in the too muchness of life. And when he came, he didn't just come and send an angel. He sent his son. He didn't just come to give us bread. He came to be bread. Not bread that rots and is digested, but the bread of life. Eternal nourishment through the blood and the life of his son. This is the great sympathy that we find in God and Christ. And thirdly, we're given not only sympathy, we're given not only a snack, We're given revelation from God. God speaks to Elijah again in verse 11. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. Now clearly God is about to reveal something special. And hang on here, we've been talking for a while, but this is in fact the climax. We're told this in the second half of verse 11. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Then after the earthquake came fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. What does that mean? And how does this help Elijah? And how does it help us in our discouragement and depression? Two lessons, two lessons here. Number one, friends, God sometimes speaks through a whisper and not through a whirlwind. God sometimes speaks through a whisper, not a whirlwind. See, sometimes we get discouraged because we expect to see God working in plain sight we expect to find him in the fireworks and the drama. We look for the proverbial wind, the things that you can perceive with your own human senses. The wind tearing the mountains apart and shattering the rocks. No, he's not there. Looking for God in the earthquake, the things that shake, the impressive things, the big things, the fire. We expect God only and always to work invisible, impressive public displays of obviousness. And sometimes, of course, God does work that way. He does show up that way. We see him working. Life is changed. He heals a disease. He is sometimes in the wind, the earthquake, and the fires. But at other times, Elijah had to learn. We need to learn. God comes in a gentle whisper. Other translations say a still, small voice. What's the message? It's this. Do you know God's unseen faithfulness? Do you know that God is at work even when you can't see it or perceive it? Even in ways that aren't impressive and obvious, oftentimes there is a hiddenness and a quietness to God's work, and it takes deep faith to believe it and to believe that he has not, in fact, abandoned you. Commentator Dale Davis puts it this way, the quietness of God's work does not mean that he is not at work, but rather that the kingdom of God has gone into its mustard seed mode. And by that last phrase, of course, he's referring to Jesus' parable about how the way that God works, the way that his power shows up in our lives and in this world, sometimes is like a little mustard seed, which, of course, in the end, turns out to be this massive tree. In all its strength and obvious glory, big enough to house even animals, birds, and all these different things, it starts off as the smallest of all seeds, fragile, vulnerable, almost invisible. That's how God often works in his kingdom. And this is what Elijah needed to know. And what we need to know, sometimes we're discouraged because of how our eyes are open. God says, don't, don't forget, sometimes I come in the gentle whisper. And he lays it out explicitly to Elijah in verses 15 to 18. Remember, Elijah was crying out what? I'm the only prophet left. This is how terribly everything is going. This is why I'm throwing in the towel. God, you're not doing anything. Verse 18, God says, "Uh uh-uh. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouth have not kissed him. Elijah, you are not alone. Dear friends, you are not alone. God is on the move. You are not alone. You were never the only one. I've always been faithful. I will always preserve for myself a people. I am always working out my promises. This is always how God does it. And of course, the greatest example of that is the life and ministry of Jesus. Where you can see throughout the pages of Bible, even beyond the story of Elijah, and you can almost say, God, you're not doing anything not actually rescuing your people from sin and brokenness and evil. And all along, God is saying, don't worry, I've got a plan, a plan that I constructed from before the creation of the world. And then Jesus shows up with all glory and splendor. No, he shows up as a baby. And he lives a life of fame and impress. No, he lives in a little backwater nation in the corner of the world as a humble carpenter, unknown at times in poverty, and the way that he saves the world and saves you and me is not by conquering power, but by a cross. He dies as a criminal in forgetability, except for those with eyes to see what he had actually accomplished. Jesus who died as a mustard seed. Jesus who died as the gentle whisper embodied itself. Do you see him? And through him, do you see what God might be doing all around you? Dear friends, be encouraged. God is doing more than you can see. Secondly, God sometimes speaks not only through a whisper, not a whirlwind. He also speaks through a voice and not a vibe. And this is what I mean by that. By vibe, what I mean is that so often we are discouraged because we allow ourselves simply to be controlled by our feelings. It feels like it's all stinking, so it must actually stink. It feels like God's doing nothing, that my life is going off a cliff, so that must be the truth. What does God's voice say to Elijah? Elijah. He says, there are all these people out there that you can't even see. Elijah needed to hear God's voice. He needed to pay attention to God's words, which would overwrite Elijah's natural emotions. I know you feel alone, Elijah, but you're not alone. I've preserved thousands for myself that you don't even know. I know you feel worthless, but I love you. And like the bread on this table that we're about to eat now, you've you got to be able to touch the love of God and let me convince you. God overwrites our emotions with his words. So that the rudder of how we're doing in a given day is not primarily driven by how I'm feeling and what I'm perceiving but it's by the unchanging promises of God and the truth of what God says actually is happening and what he's doing. Here's one thing I need to close with. One of the things that he tells Elijah is a story. He tells Elijah a story. He's he's telling him a story about God's faithfulness. How? Elijah is taken in the end to what's called in this passage Mount Horeb. Do you know that Horeb goes by another name? Mount Sinai. Sinai, of course, is a place where the exodus from Egypt happened years ago, where God gave his people the Ten Commandments, where God made his covenant with them to be their God. That's why in verse 8, Horeb is called the Mountain of God. What else? Elijah traveled 40 days and 40 nights in verse 8. Which is also the length of time that Moses spent on top of Mount Sinai with God as he was receiving the Ten Commandments. Forty is a special number. The Israelites, of course, wandered in the wilderness for forty years. And then what else? In verse 11, God passes by Elijah to reveal his nature in the gentle whisper. Just like he, what? Passed by Moses. In Exodus 33, to reveal his glory, the very same word. In verse 13, when Elijah heard the gentle whisper of God, he pulled his cloak over his face, just like Moses would pull over a veil over his face after he had met with God in the tent of meeting. You see, God is telling a story, and even through First Kings, telling his people a story, yes, about the failure and the unfaithfulness of God's people, It reoccurs again and again, and yes, it is discouraging at times, but the story of God's faithfulness is also reoccurring all over again. God is faithful. God is near just like he was in Moses' day, here even in Elijah's day. He's doing the same thing, redeeming and restoring and renewing. God is near. God never changes. And he does that again and again thousands of times in our lives because we see it for ten thousands of times in the pages of Scripture. So we need to tell ourselves this story of God's presence and his faithfulness. Fill our hearts with God's words. Great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones in London in the last generation wrote this. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself. What's he saying there? You're just letting the voices in your head and the emotions of your heart define you instead of letting God's word as you preach it to yourself be the thing that most defines you. We need to tell ourselves the story of God's faithfulness, tell ourselves the great story, about the ultimate Elijah, even Jesus himself. The story of God who saw our discouragement and drew near, not with an angel, but through his son. Who wasn't just a messenger, but who himself was the message. And at the end of the life, he ascended not to Mount Horeb, Sinai, but to Mount Calvary. And there we find there was another kind of earthquake, that indicated the presence of God. But this time on Calvary, it was an earthquake that showed God's judgment. God came near, but he came to wreak havoc upon the soul of his son. Not just tearing apart rocks, but tearing apart the soul of Jesus. Shattering in judgment Jesus's heart for our sins. Because it was what we deserve for all of our sin and selfishness. And Jesus cries out with unimaginable discouragement. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he does that so that you and I might have eternal delight. Don't you know this is the promise of the gospel? Not that through Jesus we will be happy all the time or free from discouragement, but so that none of our discouragement would ever be defining of us. And none of our depressions would ever be our final destination. Do you know the internal encouragement of God in Christ? We need all of these things in our low states. Nap and food and sympathy and revelation from God. Which do you most need today? God generously gives them all to us. But most of all, he gives us Jesus. Most of all, he gives us his son, Will you embrace him? Whatever form of discouragement you might be wrestling with today or maybe in one day in the near future. Do you know this God? Have you embraced Elijah's God, your God? The God of the gentle whisper. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would come near to us. We're weak and we need you. Help us to know that you are near Lift us up and give us strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing.